So, Will. Yes? This movie achieved the impossible. I did not like Joan Cusack. (laughs) And this movie was making me wonder, what is your least favorite movie friend that you're supposed to think of as a friend? I mean, to me, the answer is simple. And the answer is Ferris Bueller. (gasps) Yes, obviously. Wow. Melissa, you seem aghast. Truly. Please say more about this. Uh... Yeah, I think Ferris Bueller is a terrible friend and at pretty much every turn does not listen to what his friends want or feel and sows chaos primarily in their lives and not his own. Cameron is the victim of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The movie doesn't agree with that. The movie thinks that he is saved by Ferris, but that's also a position the movie gets to take because it ends before Cameron's dad walks into the room. Yeah, everything will be worse for Cameron as a result of this day. His entire life is worse because of the day off. Ferris Bueller is the most selfish friend in a movie. I, not all, but most film. You know, every time I come on this show, I feel like a movie I love just gets slightly ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I needed to do that to prove my nightmare. I know, and that's the exact movie I'm talking about. At least we didn't ruin the mummy for you. I guess. Or at least I tried not to. That movie's perfect. Yeah, the movie rules. Well, not perfect. It could do with a more sensitive depiction of Egyptians, but... Hey, Imhotep nothing wrong. nothing wrong. <laughs> exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the moral of the movie. Okay, as long as... Imhotep innocent. <laughs> okay, I think Ferris Bueller's a pretty good answer. I'm, I'm convinced, but sad about it. It's not a movie that I love, but... I'm happy that it makes people happy. Thanks. (laughs) Well, I really thought you were going to say Doc Brown. Uh, Doc Brown is a great friend. He built a time machine (laughs) and he gave Marty access to the keys so he could get in and use that giant base system before school. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, but he also gets that kid into a lot of trouble. And also, why is he friends with a high schooler? We will discuss more in a future two-hour episode. (laughs) Doc Brown also, when he realized there were issues with Marty's kids in the future, came back to get Marty and Jennifer, and then took Marty and Jennifer, who had been recast, to the future so that they could deal with what had happened to their kids. The first time Back to the Future actually made sense. Yeah. Do you have a different answer, Mark? Yes, I was thinking about one of our films that we have covered. Just had to take a second to confirm that in my brain. In Easy A, Olive's friend, played by Ali Michalka, is... Such a terrible friend, pretty much from the beginning. She does not actually listen, and one negative experience causes her to just completely cut off Olive and change her entire life and become a Christian good girl. Like, she makes her own life worse to spite her friend. I forgot about that. Yeah, she gets really close to Amanda Bynes. But also, at one point, Olive gets really close to Amanda Bynes in that movie. I think it's noteworthy that the worst friends we can think of in movies are high schoolers. I mean... Because, like, it kind of tracks, if you think about high schoolers at times being kind of fickle and feeling very passionately, which sometimes means that they're going to back one another up a lot, but also means that they might turn on each other aggressively. I looked at a list of bad friends in movies, and it listed the Heathers from Heathers on there, and I was kind of... I don't think they were supposed to be friends. They were just mean bullies. (laughs) 
Like, it's very... That list's definition of friends in high school is very weird. Melissa, what do you think is the worst film friendship? Um, I think that it's uh, Andy's best friend, Lily, in Devil Wears Prada. That was the first one that came to mind. Oh. I don't... Yeah, she has terrible friends in that movie. Yeah, terrible friends, terrible boyfriend. Like, I feel for Andy. Um, And they make her feel like crap a lot for wanting to, like, be successful in her career. Yeah, her only good friend is that dude who hit on Pam in the office. The one who, like, knows all about fashion. That's the only other thing I know him from. Yeah, her friends are famously terrible in that movie, I feel. Yeah, they they were the first friends that came to mind. Movie friendship is always either unbelievably good or bad to the point where they shouldn't be friends, and rarely in the middle. In this movie, actually, I feel that their friendship is actually kind of believably good and bad at times. Yes, I absolutely agree. You have the sense that they've been friends for a long time, which creates this space to be kind of harsh with one another. But that also creates the circumstances for the bad stuff because when Tess starts looking to push her life in different directions, Cynthia is like, no, why are you doing that? Right. And for some reason, she's on Mick's side in the fight. We'll get into this. I have a feeling. I mean, I think it reflects a certain like conservative, just like stay in your lane kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of talk by the people who made this movie about like class divides. And I think that's clear on screen. And I think some of what Cynthia is presenting while we look at that and we say that's bad in her brain it's like look you can have a nice life here on staten island and just do that and we say well wait a minute mickey cheated on her (laughs) and she should not stay with him but to cynthia she's just like look that's what happens sometimes to us gals that's just (laughs) life for us women all right i think before we get too far to the weeds Our last episode we recorded, I think we were an hour in before we started the episode. (laughs) So it wasn't it wasn't that far. Okay. Anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I am Mark and I am gay. I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are rejoined from across the country by our friend Melissa to talk about the romance of Mike Nichols' 1988 Best Picture nominee, Working Girl. Ooh, hello, hello. Um, I am really excited to talk about this movie, which I had never seen before. And when I looked it up, the only real thing that stuck with me was that it was Harrison Ford in the 80s, so I was ready to go. Yeah, which is hot Harrison Ford. Hot, peak. I think I have a note that says Harrison is peak in this movie. Okay, so maybe we need to talk because I think hottest Harrison Ford is unquestionably Temple of Doom. Yes. Yes. Yeah. An unfortunate film with by far the hottest Harrison Ford look. (laughs) The racist scene where they're having the dinner and eating the the food and they're like making it seem as gross as possible is the hottest Harrison Ford (laughs) has ever looked. I know. It's That's awful. Things can contain multitudes, a scene I would never want to watch again, except that he's just so handsome. So, like I said, this is directed by Mike Nichols, who we've talked about before on our episodes about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate and The Birdcage. It also stars, as Melissa mentioned, Harrison Ford in his killer 80s run of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Blade Runner. He's heading into his Jack Ryan period. He absolutely should 
not have top billing in this movie, though. No, it's bizarre that he has top billing in this movie. He doesn't show up until, like, halfway through. <laughs> then we have uh, second build, Sigourney Weaver, who is coming off of an Oscar nomination for Aliens. She is so good in this movie, and I cannot wait to talk about my entirely complicated feelings about Catherine. <laughs> She's so good, and also just astoundingly hot in this movie. Yes. You see it for her in this? I think I I get it. I get it. I think she is unbelievably attractive <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> I can't wait till we get to the section on is anyone dateable? Because I feel like it can really diverge. I don't want to date her. I think <laughs> exactly. she's a bad lady. Yeah, I think that counts for a lot of people. <laughs> but like, she walks into this movie with her coat <laughs> arranged in a way that she basically has a cape. And it is Sigourney Weaver, who is a striking woman, <laughs> striding into the film with a cape billowing out behind her. And I'm like, all right, sure. <laughs> I'm here for it. None of that surprises me. <laughs> When she is laying in her bed and making herself as sexy as possible, that is a good look. (laughs) I did a watch through of all the Alien movies this spring, so I've also been spending a lot of time with Sigourney. (laughs) And then third build, uh, we have Melanie Griffith. The actual star of the movie. (laughs) Right. But, I mean, it kind of makes sense that she's third build because, like, at this point, she's a tabloid name, but she's not, like, a movie star name. Right. Right. I get it. But it's also funny that the two characters built above her probably have a combined total of 45 minutes on screen. And then Melanie Griffith is third. And she's in almost every scene. Yes. But she is so good in this movie with her weird Staten Island accent into her fake elocution after she copies Catherine. I love that scene where she has... Catherine's like voice memo tape recorder and just listens to it and practices Catherine's diction over and over again so that she can sound like a fancy person from Manhattan. While she's on one of those 80s exercise machines that looks like a torture device. Yeah. I thought about that, um, that diction scene when I was reading this oral history that the Hollywood Reporter did for the 30th anniversary of the movie. And the screenwriter, Kevin Wade, talked a lot about the movie in a weird way, as, like, an immigrant story that starts off, like, on a boat coming to New York City. Like, one of the first shots is the Statue of Liberty. And that, like, a whole part of it is obviously, like, about women and women in the workplace and stuff like that, but also about, like, people coming to this place where they don't quite speak the language and trying to assert a place for themselves. Wow. It's a white woman immigration story. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's a white American woman immigration tale. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, like, is it the best metaphor in the world? No, but I think there's something interesting there. In no, terms of, like... It's it's accurate. Not, like, obviously, like, language, but, like, the different sort of vocabularies that we use in different worlds and how that can present these invisible barriers. Because I think that definitely is something that Tess has run into many times. Yeah. Her hair is so tall in the beginning of this movie. <laughs> I do not understand how it's physically possible for her hair to look like that. It's the 80s, Mark. Yeah. So I mentioned the Staten Island Ferry. All the shooting that they did on the ferry was illegal. They did not get permits, and those were just real people on the ferry with them. (laughs) But because they really wanted Tess to look like a person who would commute into Manhattan from Staten Island, they would do her hair and makeup on the ferries. They'd be like, we got 20 minutes to do it, because a normal woman living her life would not be able to spend that much more time on it. That feels realistic. 
I can see quite a few people doing their hair and makeup on the Staten Island Ferry. Is it crazy that it's still the fastest way to get to Manhattan from Staten Island is the ferry? Like, there's no subway system. I guess it's far. I, mean, I think it's just like I don't actually far know the way that that would be hard to do. I don't actually know the geography of Staten Island because it's one place I just have never been. It is both further and larger, further from and larger than the rest of New York than most people realize. Yeah, I mostly know about the Staten Island Ferry through the cultural conversation around this movie, to be honest. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I mean, almost everything I know about this movie, let's be real, comes from the Bob's Burgers episode where they do a musical of it. An all-time classic. And it was very funny to hear lines from this movie that were lines from the Bob's Burgers musical, because I was like, oh, this is well, a very the famous other way, line. Mark, let's be clear. They yes. were lines from this movie that were in the Bob's Burgers <laughs> musical. Uh, wait, this movie from 1988 came out before the season five episodes of Bob's Burgers? Believe it or not, it did. But you know what I mean. When I got to the, I've got a head for business and a bod for sin line in the movie i almost cheered what a line that that line is i yeah it's iconic and weird and i will say that that whole scene made me feel really i don't know i just felt like up until that point i had an idea of who tess was or the, the character they were trying to portray and that scene just kind of really took me for a loop because I was already kind of like, okay, you know, she doesn't maybe love her boss, but she's like, you know, watching over her boss's place. And she just jumps right into like mimicking her, like on her stuff, using her makeup. Like this feels a little single white female, a little odd. Like, I don't know if these are the choices I would make. And then she's at this reunion or whatever. And she drops, I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Like, who is well, this I will person? Say- She's on Valium and three or four tequila shots in <laughs> at this point. And having taken a Valium, I do not understand how her friend is just like, here, this is just a little something that'll chill you out. I took a Valium because I was having part of my eye removed and it was to calm me down. <laughs> it was so that I would sit still in a chair during LASIK and it worked. So I don't know why Joe Cusack was just like, here, have this Valium. Insane. It's like the long tail of like the Mad Men era of like medicating women into docility. <laughs> yeah. But that line is, I think, I think Mark said, I think Mark has said that line before. That's why he's like, I feel her. I've been on Valium. I know what this, I know what happens yeah. to you. <laughs> I looked over as soon as I took the Valium to the technician who was helping me prepare for surgery and just said (laughs) i've got a head for business and a bod for sin to be fair he did have to fireman carry you out of the operating room (laughs) yes of course uh being high on valium and mostly blind because you had laser eye surgery and then walking yourself to a car because it's a pandemic, so the person who drove you can't come into the office is a very strange experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. That was very weird. That was a weird moment in my life when I had to call Nick to be like, I need you to kind of walk me to where you are. Uh, Weird world we live in. Well, 
the line I have a head for business and a body for and a it's actually it's bod. Not body it's bod <laughs> it's B-O-D. bod I have a head for business and a bod for sin did not appear on AFI's list of the top hundred <laughs> books for American movies but it was nominated so I am going to seize that as my transition point because Working Girl which I very much liked I I feel like I don't totally know where the two of you fall on it quite yet performed quite well on some of those AFI lists. Its theme song, Let the River Run by Carly Simon, is a number jam. 91 on, on the songs list. That song was a hit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the movie is also number 91 on the 100 Passions list of movie mm. romances and number 87 on the 100 Cheers list of movies that you cheer during. <laughs> Towards the end there, AFI kind of ran out of lists. Yeah, I thought it was movies that had cheering scenes in them, because this movie had more than one cheering moment. Including a great one at the end. Right, and then a great one in the middle, where all the women in an office applaud Harrison Ford for taking his shirt off. Yes, I cheered during that moment. <laughs> I may have <laughs> I may have hit rewind twice. <laughs> I assume that's what, the, that's what the list means. Wasn't Catherine nominated for their... 50 best villains list too uh i i don't know i didn't pay a ton of attention to the nominations that it got yeah um but i can take a look i think i found i may have found that by looking up Catherine specifically um yes Catherine was nominated for uh for the villain list tess mcgill was nominated for the heroes list and it was also nominated for their list of the top 10 romantic comedies hmm I don't think I would put this in my top 10. I did like this movie. Well, neither did the AFI. Yeah. <laughs> I did enjoy this movie. It is a good movie. But it's a movie where I wanted to scream that more than one woman can work at a business at a time. Not possible. Sorry. not <laughs> That's not realistic. <laughs> I don't think the movie says no to that. I know. And I know that Catherine is just a bad person. Because she is a terrible person. I, like, wanted to come in and just be like, ah, oh, Sigourney Weaver, you can't be that bad. And I'm like, oh, no. So she is just an awful, awful person. <laughs> I do think it's more interesting that the bad boss is a woman, though. Because, like, if you do, like, bad boss is a man thing, like, we kind of know where that story goes. Like, they do it in 10 minutes at the start of the movie where we have yeah Oliver Platt and Kevin Spacey. They're like, that's the story. Like, the story that you can tell here, it takes 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can do like more complicated stuff. Like the spacey scene made me think a lot about The Assistant, which is a feature-length movie that gets into like bad male boss creepy stuff. I think this movie tells a very particular story where Tess then gets the new job and her new boss is a woman and has that moment of excitement. Like, wow, I'm not going to have to do the like chasing around the desk thing. And then finds herself in very different waters where Catherine is like weaponizing women are in this together against her. Yeah. Which creates for a really interesting dynamic. It is very interesting. I just, I was reading an article and it points out that literally as soon as Catherine sits down at the meeting, Tess stands up so there can be one woman at the table. And it's just not a great image. But Catherine is also, it's more of a class thing. It's, I think it's tied much more to class. Right. That someone who is a secretary does not belong at the table. Right. And the whole time I was watching it, though, I was kind of just like, I like in 9 to 5 when the women team up to take down evil corporate America. <laughs> yeah, I think the Catherine character is 
a pretty good depiction of a certain kind of woman in the corporate world. But I think that that person is, I don't know, at least in my personal experience, like few and far between, thankfully, and nine to five. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, that would be my ideal working situation, maybe. But like, no, I think that that's closer to the kind of... um, I don't know, the kind of workspace that hopefully most women experience now. But Catherine is very, very well written, I think. And I think Sigourney Mm -hmm. Weaver does a very good job portraying that kind of upper crust niceness um, that you think she's going to be really supportive. And then she's very, very good at sort of like not only, I mean, doing the kind of primary plot of stealing your idea, but just sort of nitpicking you a little bit too on the way to stealing your idea. I also think that Catherine is the encapsulation of gatekeep gaslight girl boss. (laughs) Girl boss. (laughs) And especially like the 1980s, like you think this movie comes out a year after Wall Street. And so the kind of like high powered intensity, greed is good vibe. Obviously, like Gordon Gecko is like kind of the villain of Wall Street, but most Americans were like, that guy's cool. (laughs) So I think Catherine fits into that world. I can see in the 2021 version of Working Girl, Catherine calling her girly. Like, the Catherine character would call her (laughs) secretary, hey, girly, when she walks into the office. And then still say things like, we need to have our makeup to be presentable as we sell our MLM products. (laughs) I feel like we have not yet had, like, the great MLM movie. I... What TV show was it? I think it may There's have been a like... There's Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode that's quite good. Yeah, I think that's what I'm thinking of. Workaholics also, I think, did some MLM stuff with, I think, Scientology thrown in the mix. Very easy to combine the two. I just feel like we're ripe for like a, a good, elaborate MLM comedy. Or an MLM horror movie. Yeah, mm. I'd be into that too. Turns out it's a cult that raises a dead bo- like a uh, evil demon i'm trying to remember the plot of the movie hereditary or the name of the demon and i'm completely <laughs> blanking so payment payment imagine if instead of just like old people in a cult raising payment it's herbalife <laughs> they are trying to raise right. money and souls it's the soul sucking process of selling multi-level marketing is actually draining human souls to feed a demon. I feel like it's not quite the same thing, but we are approaching like Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest where Davy Jones goes to sailors who are about to die and is like, <laughs> you can prolong your death by a hundred years by working for me. Yeah, that kind of vibe. It's not quite an MLM, but you do have like horror death capitalism there. But instead of having to work for him on a evil ghost ship he makes you walk door to door selling knives or makeup i feel like i would rather be turned into a fish pirate i also would rather be turned into a fish pirate than sell door to door all right how many movies have we made up on this show Uh, many i write down most of them when i edit (laughs) so he can steal the ideas I know, I'm just going to get cut out of this deal. (laughs) I think I put in enough of the labor on this that I own all the intellectual property. (laughs) He's going to Catherine me. He is. He's going to Tresk Industries. (laughs) So, uh, we've talked a lot about Sigourney Weaver. I think we should talk a little bit about Melanie Griffith as Tess. 
So she read the screenplay actually before Mike Nichols had come on board. So then like when Nichols signed on to direct it, he heard like Melanie Griffith is really interested. Like I said, she had been very much a tabloid figure. She's the daughter of Tippi Hedren. Like by this point, she had been in body double as kind of a sex object. Uh, She was in Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, which is a movie that I like a lot. She'd also like had a six month marriage to Don Johnson coming off of a relationship that started when she was 15, like some kind of skeevy stuff. And she and her agent are like very much trying to reposition her as like an actor and not a tabloid figure. Uh, We kind of talked about this with Drew Barrymore when we talked about Never Been Kissed. So she auditions for Mike Nichols. Nichols is like, great, let's do it. But Scott Rudin, the now disgraced producer, was working at Fox at the time and he wanted to cast Shelley Long coming off of Cheers, which is a terrible idea. That would have been yeah, I can't, not I good. I see that. Right. I love Shelley Long. I love Diane. Part of what makes that character work is that you kind of want her to just shut up all the time. <laughs> and that energy, I think, carries through in Shelley Long's film performances, and you cannot have it in Tess. No, absolutely not. So Mike Nichols threatened to quit if Fox didn't let him cast Melanie Griffith. And they agreed on the condition that both Catherine and Jack be, like, name actors. Because they didn't want to hang the movie on somebody who, like, wasn't a big name. So that's why they cast Sigourney Weaver and then Harrison Ford. And they actually had to bring in Harrison Ford kind of late. They had already cast Alec Baldwin as Jack Trainer, And Fox is like, no, you have to cast a big name. So they cast Harrison Ford and bumped Alec Baldwin down to Mickey. I think Alec Baldwin could have played either role. I could see him being a Jack Trainer too. So, Alec Baldwin is in five movies in 1988. Jeez Louise. His first ever movie is in 1987. So his second through sixth film appearances are all in this year, including his hottest performance, which is Beetlejuice. (laughs) Melissa, you are laughing at me. Alec Baldwin in Beetlejuice is like, the hottest dude. He's not Harrison Ford in Temple of Doom, but he's hot. It was just really, I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but that wasn't it. But I don't disagree, I think. Andy's married to Gina Davis. Right, yeah. Everything's coming up Will in that marriage. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the list of directors that Alec Baldwin worked with in 1988. Okay, we got Mike Nichols in this, John Hughes, Jonathan Demme, Tim Burton, and Oliver Stone. Oh my god. Wow. Big year. Yeah. That's a year. That's a Jim Carrey in nineteen ninety-four run. It it really is. Now, the thing about Jim Carrey in ninety-four is that he's the lead of all of those movies. Right. Whereas a lot of these are supporting roles for yeah. Baldwin. Like Baldwin, he's like killed in the first ten minutes of Married to the Mob, but he's good in it. I thought you were gonna say he's killed in the first ten minutes of Beetlejuice, and I was like, I mean, yeah, but his <laughs> role doesn't end there. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> There's more to his performance. It is also uh, the second film appearance by Kevin Spacey, whose first was in Heartburn, which is also a Mike Nichols movie based on a Nora Ephron script. Um, And Kevin Spacey in this movie plays a sleazy guy who takes advantage of his workplace position to try to force someone to have sex with him. Yeah, Kevin Spacey's not doing that much acting in this movie, I don't think. Yeah. He sucks. And I did not like seeing him. No, I, again, I didn't know anything about this movie when I started watching it. And I think I screamed, oh my God, Kevin Spacey, uh, when he appeared. And then this awful sex scene that he shows her. It was just all so bad. It like in the pool. 
in the it's pool. It's a very strange sex scene with like a woman in like a donut <laughs> floater and a man pushing her through the pool, like eating her out. Yeah, it's very strange. It's just a lot. Imagine, just a lot. <laughs> imagine a movie with a hardcore porn scene, even as short as that, making over a hundred million dollars <laughs> today. I mean, it's a hundred million worldwide. Yeah. Even world, I guess you have the France market, but even world. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about dangerous liaisons another time. (laughs) But even just how much did it make domestically? Because it's still a lot of money. 64 million, which is a lot in 1988. And honestly, would still be good for this movie today. Right. And there's just so many boobs and a hardcore porn scene. It was the first time I have ever seen a woman eaten out on screen in a major Hollywood award-winning film, I will say. It's the 80s. It's the 80s. <laughs> it's the 80s. <laughs> there was a piece going around this past spring, I forget who wrote it, about the decline of uh, what they called the soft R, which is like the movie that kind of just like happens into an R rating. Like, you know, a lot of the action movies of the 80s that would like spend a lot of time on cable where it's like, they use the F word too many times and like, whoops, it's an R rating. And the studio was like, whatever, it'll still make enough money. Whereas like today, it feels like every R rating is a like very deliberate choice. Like a studio is like, all right, we're going to go for an R rating, which means there's going to be like a lot of violence or a lot of sex. Like there's nothing that happens into it because everything is like, can we get the PG-13 rating? Can we get like 12 year olds to come to this movie? Like, how do we make it a tentpole? And yeah, I think that the version of this movie that gets made today is a lot more conservative or way raunchier. Right. Yeah, I think I did think that like as I was watching this, I thought there's a lot of random boobs in this movie. I mean, there's I don't a lot you know, of it is what it is. <laughs> but like, but just like, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess I always kind of struggle when people talk about like, are sex scenes necessary or is nudity necessary? Like, you know, whatever floats your boat, I guess. But I did think, I'm really not sure. I, I get the visual they want to give with high heels and no top vacuuming somebody else's apartment, but I don't really know if that was a necessary one. For what it's worth, that was Melody Griffith's idea. <laughs> I mean, she looks great, so... The other main boob moment is when she walks it on Alec Baldwin with another woman. And that's a scene where I feel like the boobs work and are necessary. Because it's jarring to the audience as it is jarring to Tess. Right. Because it's a surprise even. It's more impactful than the classic woman on top wearing bra visual. Yeah, I think that scene works. I actually think that while the pool scene in the limo is bizarre i think it works too but i really don't the vacuum the vacuuming and that that doesn't that that one just doesn't work for me (laughs) sorry melanie the movie definitely does use the nudity and sex in the earlier parts of the movies to create a situation that is as jarring for the audience as it is for tess very purposefully. Yeah. And I really do think that is good. But that, and you also have a lot of just kind of, this is for the audience, even with Harrison Ford taking off his shirt in front of a window at his workplace. <laughs> Shameless. I think, I think we are supposed to understand that he thought the blinds were closed because his back is to the window for most of it. 
Right. But it is still just that scene is clearly just because women like seeing Harrison Ford with his shirt off. And I guess you could justify it as like, we're doing this to show how hard he worked that he stayed in the office for 36 hours and he had to change his shirt. But we all know what's really going on here. And you know what? I'm not actually complaining about that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm looking at what else we need to talk about with this movie before we dig into the romance. Uh, One that we have alluded to is the music by Carly Simon, who wrote the you know, AFI recognized theme song, but Academy also Award the rest winning. of the music for this movie as well. That's right. Yeah. She won the Grammy, the Oscar and the Golden Globe for Let the River Run, which made her the first performer to win all three for a song that was written and performed by one artist. That's impressive. She deserved. She deserved. She deserved. Yeah. The only other person with that distinction is Bruce Springsteen for Streets of Philadelphia. That's good. That's good company. I mean, I know. Okay, so that's a pair of bops. (laughs) I think this song is great. I really don't think it personally makes sense for this movie. Not (laughs) at all. It doesn't really match any part of this movie. Any part. I don't vibe, man. I just don't really care. It fits much more into a like hard scrabble immigrant story about someone coming <laughs> well that's this story see Mark. now you're on the same page <laughs> i know no that's the thing is the, you and kevin wade man the movie starts with a shot of the statue of liberty it very much has all of the cues they just made her immigrating to manhattan from staten island i honestly thought i'd click the wrong movie when it started <laughs> <laughs> I, because the tone was you so You thought you were bizarre. watching Brooklyn. <laughs> and I, as it was ending, like, Caleb walked it. He, like, was like, what are you watching? I thought you were watching Working Girl. Like, so the song is great, but it definitely is weird. Which I think, I don't know, there's a lot of, like, weird tone parts to this movie. to me as well like i think there's parts that are really funny like harrison ford has some great comedic moments and he does lots of great harrison ford faces like throughout the movie oh my gosh the one when he does like me and the (laughs) elevator door closes on his face it's so good it's so good um or when he's drinking the two giant drinks at the wedding like he's wonderful (laughs) in this that shot of him holding those cups (laughs) so good like, he was really hilarious in this, but I don't know. Like, there were some moments that also were, like, pretty dark, too. Like, I I felt like, you know, with the scene with Kevin Spacey, like, that's that's pretty dark stuff. And, like, she's, you know, essentially having her boss, like, try to pimp her out. Like, Mick is a pretty bad boyfriend. Like, she's got some yeah. really tough moments where I'm like, oh, when Harrison shows up, it, it gets pretty light. But, yeah, I think tonally it's a little all over the place at points. And this song is a good example of that too. I think that's part of like just a Mike Nichols movie. True. Like you think back to like the first two are Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. Like the best Mike Nichols movies are ones that successfully balance those different tones. And to me, Working Girl pretty much pulls it off. The failures are the ones where they're too far apart. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you're in like a Catch-22 situation. Literally the movie (laughs) Catch-22 where the tones don't mesh together. 
the bride walking into the bathroom crying because her now husband said that the tropical theme feels like a political commentary on Nicaragua (laughs) is one of the funniest (laughs) things to happen in a movie. That was great. Look, Mark, what you need to understand is that in order to pay for this wedding, her father sold weapons to the Israeli (laughs) government, who then sold them to the Iranians. They then took the money and secretly used it to fund the wedding. It's the 80s, baby. (laughs) It was such a good line. I keep finding excuses to bring up the screenwriter of this movie, and the reason is because, like, he's a screenwriter, he wrote Made in Manhattan, he wrote Junior, the movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger gets pregnant. The important thing is that the guy who wrote this movie has been the showrunner of Blue Bloods for, like, eight (laughs) seasons. And I needed to not forget to say that. What? Wow. He has been the showrunner of Blue Bloods since season two. Blue Bloods has had nine seasons? (laughs) Yes, it is still running. Tom Selleck is just being a New York cop. My utter lack of knowledge about the procedurals on CBS and ABC is truly shocking anytime I learn new information. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, so Blue Bloods has aired on CBS since 2010. They have aired 11 seasons. Oh my god. Oh, I didn't know it had been that long. And they are going strong. Uh, it's the same like thing where popular. I keep I keep finding out. Wait, okay, so now I'm on the Wikipedia page and I'm learning things that I didn't know, which is that like Donnie Wahlberg has been in the cast for 11 seasons. Len Cariou, the original Sweeney Todd, has been in the cast for 11 seasons. Yeah, wow. That show looks I think terrible. I mom watches. I mean, I, I watch up. Sorry. <laughs> Blue Bloods has no, currently aired 234 episodes. I don't, I mean, it's maybe not that quietly. I don't know. I definitely can love a CBS, NBC, ABC kind of network show. Like, I like a lot. I like some network oh, totally. stuff. But Blue yeah, Bloods no. looks pretty bad. <laughs> so there's great stuff on network shows. But then you also have CBS churning out 40 seasons of NCIS and apparently 11 seasons of Blue Bloods. (laughs) We're too busy wondering at the fact that NCIS is apparently the number one show on television to notice that Blue Bloods (laughs) has run for 11 years. NCIS used to be like the show, though. All those reruns on USA Network, like... I was pretty. I hooked. used to watch NCIS <laughs> every week. It is literally the number one show on television. I believe it. I believe that. I mean, how many people are watching it that are currently dead in their chairs? Probably <laughs> a non-zero number. Speaking of TV shows, in 1990, Working Girl was adapted into an NBC sitcom starring Sandra Bullock as Tess. What? Well, that doesn't sound terrible. Uh, it ran. F- they produced 12 episodes. Only eight were aired. It was, by all accounts, a financial failure. At least. Um, it's a loose adaptation, like Tess lives with her parents, there's no Jack Trainer character. She's like balancing working in the city after a recent promotion, and also her life on Staten Island and like some schmo who's into her. Okay. That's yeah, that sounds bad. <laughs> yeah, you you need you need Jack for this. <laughs> That's like a critical part of the success, I think. Yeah. Alright. So should we start talking about the romance of this movie? Yeah, we probably should. Alright, so every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help guide us through the film and the plotline. Melissa, why don't you take us to point number one? Okay, so point one that I have is the loser boyfriend, um, which is, you know, always a fun part of a romance is getting to see the guy you know is inevitably going to be dumped for somebody way better. 
Oh, but Mickey seems so nice. <laughs> he just got a boat loan. The funniest thing <laughs> someone could say to try to get you to come back. I, I just, just got approved for a, a boat, boat loan. loan. Great. Ugh. And then the lingerie he buys her. Terrible. Like, he He's bought trash. her lingerie for her birthday. Like. Yeah, so she can look nice, you know? <laughs> Her saying, why don't you- I'm Mickey! Why don't you buy me something I can wear out for my birthday? Tells you so much about this man. Like, and then when she's walking with him and trying to, like, talk about her day and her boss, he's just like, hey, let's shuffle along before the pizza gets cold. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, you're walking too slowly. Come on, lady, I gotta get this pepperoni in my mouth. Like, he's just, I don't know, just no real redeeming qualities other than he's there. I really can't imagine. I mean, I guess I can imagine. (laughs) Which is basically, like, what Tess is telling her. Like, Mickey is there. He's kind of going to always be there. Look, he might go bang Dolores on the side every (laughs) once in a while, but he's there. You can count on that. (sighs) I just want want more. He's as solid as a boat that will never (laughs) leave the dock. I just want more for my sisters, you know, like out there. Like, I just really, I don't know. I think that he's a great, he is a really great picture, though, of like where Tess is at in her life, the kinds of like men that she is seeing and meeting. And I think a great representation of the kind of thing she's ready to move on for. Like, she's primed to move on from this guy. Right. As we enter the movie, Tess is really trying to push her way into new things. We've been told she like, took some courses outside of work. She like went to night school. She's trying to move up, up at her company and nobody's really giving her those opportunities. She's applying for like trainee positions to shift away from being a secretary and she's being rebuffed at every turn. Like she winds up at the car with Kevin Spacey because Oliver Platt kind of implies to her that it's a job offer and it's not. And there's the same thing where she's hoping to move up professionally she's also kind of wondering if the opportunities that are available to her in her personal life like is this all that there is am i stuck with mickey it's also important to keep in mind that there was a different idea of an unmarried woman who turned 30 in the 80s than we have now absolutely the fact that she's not married and she is 30 is definitely another reason why sin is probably pushing her to just settle down with Mickey. Because, I mean, her eggs are rotting inside her as they're speaking. And we all know rotten eggs are stinky. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I mean, almost hitting 30, unmarried, definitely got to settle for a guy like Mick. (laughs) Sarcasm. (laughs) Melanie Griffith herself is 30 and trying to remake her career at this point. Like, she talked a lot in interviews about how she felt a really strong connection to Tess, and I think that's there in her life, too. At the time this is going on, she's also, like, struggling with a cocaine addiction and an alcohol addiction. Like, she goes into rehab, like, right after production wraps on this. And so I think there's something of that in this, too. Yeah, I think I did have a moment where I had to Google, is everyone actually 30 in this movie? Because I did think that, I don't know, it's probably the 80s hair and makeup, but people did look a little bit older. But I actually thought Sigourney Weaver was younger in this, but she's actually almost 40 in this movie. You know what? It's, she looks great. <laughs> I know, and it's still working for you. <laughs> She's got a brain for business, and, and you know what else. But yeah, I think that 
you know, Mickey's a pretty crappy boyfriend. And I think Cynthia seems to have like Tess's, I don't know, she's trying to have like her best interest at heart. But I don't know, like, I guess if you if you feel like Mickey's there and being there is like the qualification for a good significant other, you know, I don't know. Who knows what Cynthia's new fiance is like? Like, I just is he better than Mickey? Like, is she just kind of I think probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Sin also is not that supportive of her work trying to improve herself. Like she complains about all the classes that she goes True. to, but she does celebrate her successes with her. Right. I think that Cynthia very much is a person who is like, you should kind of just accept life as it is. And you'll be happier if you accept life as it is. You won't face all these disappointments. But when push comes to shove, in the workplace, I do feel like she backs up Tess in a lot of cases. She does act as Tess's assistant and help her out in that way a lot. And she does cheer Tess at the end of the movie, recognizing this victory. That was such a good... I love that. Yeah, I think that I did have a moment, though, of like, so Cynthia works here, too, because I think I was like, is she just appearing, like, and hanging out with Tess at various times, like, to pretend to be her secretary? But yeah, I think you're right. Like... She does celebrate her, but yeah, she has a different viewpoint in life, and it's just not the viewpoint that Tess has, or it's just not what Tess wants for herself, which makes me want to think maybe Sin's man is actually better than Mickey, and that's why she can- Yeah, that's why she's content, because her man doesn't suck like Mickey does. Okay. Also, I just remembered (laughs) Olympia Dukakis is in this movie for like 30 seconds. (laughs) Right, Olympia Dukakis- who has an Oscar <laughs> at this point? This is post Moonstruck. She's just vibing. Like great, great performance. Uh, all right. So is that point one? She has a terrible boyfriend. <laughs> yes, point one. Hey, it's Mickey. Sucks. He got a boat loan. <laughs> uh, nothing like a man with debt. Um, so <laughs> I think that my point two is this moment between Tess and Catherine, um, where Catherine kind of gives her this pep talk of who makes it happen. And the answer is like, obviously that you do or I do. Tess, you know, you don't get anywhere in this world by waiting for what you want to come to you. You make it happen. Watch me, Tess. Learn from me. Um, so I feel like this is a really good kind of additional point of like, how Tess wants to see herself and like it tees up what's to come like pretty well that we're going to see someone who is just kind of doubling down on to Will's point of like is there more to life like her answer is going to be yes and we're going to watch her figure out how to get these things yeah Catherine very much presents herself as a mentor to Tess it's a two-way street we're going to help one another we make it happen we're going to improve our lives which Tess is really excited about but Obviously, as the movie goes on, it turns out that Catherine really is not interested in helping other people up behind her. Yeah, and I think that what's kind of interesting about the way that Tess is, or the way that Melanie Griffiths portrays Tess is like, I feel like you can really see that she wants Catherine to be a mentor. She wants to trust her, but there's like a strong common sense of like, I can't really kind of trust this woman. Like she seems like when she's talking to Mickey about her, like, 
she's excited. Like she thinks that, you know, Catherine can really be helpful to her. But I think a lot of the beats that you see between them when they're one to one is there's a lot of hesitancy there. Like, is Catherine really going to be the real deal? I've never worked for a woman before. A lot of the bosses I've had at this firm are pretty crappy. Like, I think that she does a good job playing both sides of being really excited, but also being like, rightfully hesitant about what Catherine can really give to her life and to her career. There's almost a sense that, like, when she's talking to Mickey about her excitement, that she's talking herself into, like, yes, this is going to work. This is going to be the change. But then, of course, she gets in trouble with that when uh, one of the things that she thinks she wants is being with Mickey, and she comes home early one night, and Mickey is having sex with Dolores in their bed. And he just says, no class? (laughs) Like, that's just, like, (laughs) a great reaction. (laughs) And then there's just this string of it, then, where, like, he is confused that she's annoyed. <laughs> Three days later, they're at Cynthia's engagement party, and he proposes to Tess. And oh, she's like, I'll think about it. My He's God, like, what do you want from me? Like, I said, I'm sorry. I proposed to you. What more could you want? And Cynthia's like, Yeah, you know, you should probably give him a chance. And she's like, Why would I do that? <laughs> She really needed better friends. But he got a boat loan! (laughs) When he yelled at her, it's like, who cares about what you want? Or something. Why is it always about what you want? I was just, you got your boat loan. What more do you want? Leave her alone. (laughs) Uh, Mickey's no good. He's no good. And Cynthia's a, you know, a well-meaning friend, but not helpful in this situation whatsoever to Tess. But I think that that's like, I just really think that the Catherine character is portrayed and written very well. Like, I feel like I, even now in 2021, could know this person. Um, And that's probably not a good thing. It's insidious. (laughs) Gatekeep, gaslight, girl boss. Okay, should I move to point three? Let's do it. Okay, so point three is what I think would be called the meat cute, but I definitely think it's more of a meat sexy because Harrison Ford with anybody thirsty, I think I actually said out loud me. <laughs> like I'm actually <laughs> <pretty> thirsty. <laughs> and then of course, as we mentioned, the great line of I have a head for business and a bod for sin. I didn't know they let bad girls into these things. Do I look like I don't belong here? No. Hmm. No, no, I'm sure you're a real ace at whatever it is that you do, do. Damn straight. But how you look. I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? Um, This is how they meet, which feels like extremely heightened, but still cute in their own way, I guess. Yeah, so what's going on is that Sigourney Weaver has had a terrible skiing accident, so she's not going to be at work for a while. So Tess is supposed to take care of her business, and in the process, discovers that her idea that she had pitched to Catherine about this company that they were working for, buying radio stations instead of TV, and Catherine had dismissed it, that she was actually maybe going to be pursuing it on her own and cutting Tess out. So Tess is like, screw it, I make it happen. I'm going to try to make it happen. And so she called up Harrison Ford, Jack Trainer, who worked at another company and was like, hey, let's make a deal. This night, she's at a party trying to scope it out and like get a vibe from him before they have their meeting. She kind of bumps into Harrison Ford and starts chatting. I think he like goes over to the bar and starts talking to her. Yep. 
It's very bizarre. His compliment for that was very bizarre. I think he says something to her like, you're the only woman like dressed like a woman in here and not dressed. I don't, I can't remember what it was, but I not thought. Not dressed hmm. like a woman thinks a man would dress if he were a woman. <laughs> it's quite the compliment. I do love Tessa's commitment to basically doing exactly what MBA textbooks tell her to do. Where she's just, I read in the book that you're supposed to show up at the meet before a meeting to get a vibe and socialize in a book. So that's what I'm going to do. Because it really shows her commitment to learning, but also the fact that she's probably, she is new to it. Like, she doesn't have the real experience. She is going off of what she's learned in a book. Yeah, and those, like, meet-cute of it is kind of tricky because Harrison Ford does know who she is. He doesn't know her job, obviously, but he knows, like, this is the woman I'm meeting tomorrow. And she doesn't know that, and he insists on a no-name situation, which is not ideal because it puts them on, like, an awkward, uneven footing. And then he buys multiple tequilas, and she's on a Valium, and we talked about that. Yeah. It's not a good intro look, to be honest. <laughs> Especially when he mouths doubles at the bartender with against her, yes. like, without her knowledge. Yeah, I, I really struggled because it's Harrison Ford, so I wanted to just love it 100%. But <laughs> he's weird here. Like, he's, you know, I get it. He's tall and handsome, but he's really weird here. Yeah, the movie introduces him pretty skeevy and then spends the rest of the movie being like, don't worry, he's good. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like they went so hard on the skeeviness at first that the movie tried to justify it later. When you could also just not have him be that skeevy at the beginning. If he had honestly just slept on the couch instead of getting into the bed with her. That's that's literally it. I thought, like, okay, like, at the bar, he's a little, like, gross, but, like, okay, he looks like Harrison Ford. All right, whatever. Like, then he, like, kindly takes her home, and I don't, or takes, tries to take her home, but then takes her to his place, and I'm like, okay, he's not giving, like, total creep yet. She is also too drunk to say where she lives. Exactly. It was a situation where, where else is he gonna take her? Right, so, so far, he's not too bad. But then when we come to next morning... And at first, because the way she's shot, they're under the blankets. I'm like, is she naked? But then I remember she's wearing like a strapless bra. I just thought to myself, couldn't he have been a little less weird and not slept in the bed with her? That just feels so weird. And it took me a while to really get to like, okay, maybe Jack's not so bad. Because that just is so creepy. Just sleep somewhere else. He also waits until after their meeting when she's been kind of like flustered and embarrassed to tell her that they did not have sex. Right. He's not a good guy up until this point. The movie <laughs> introduces him as implying that he date raped her. And then we're supposed to immediately just feel like, ah, it's okay. He didn't. Her, that's good. <laughs> what I do like in that meeting is that Tess shows up for that meeting with Jack Trainer, who she learns is Harrison Ford, wearing the exact outfit that Sigourney wore on her on Tess's first day at work. Yeah. Like she's oh, wearing Oh, I didn't notice that. Um, I did because that outfit on Sigourney <laughs> imprinted strongly on my brain. <laughs> yeah, I could tell. Wouldn't Jack have recognized it? Because it's I mean, not even just it's possible the same for out- two women to go to the same store. No, it's not. Will this is movies? No one has the <laughs> no one has the same name. No one wears the same outfit twice. And unless it is a major plot point where they wear it to the same event, women will never wear outfits that another woman has worn. 
It's true. All of our clothes are just completely Unless it's the flavor of love season one finale. Women never wear the same outfit. This is the second time that show has come up on this podcast in the last year, and I have still seen none of it. That is two times more than I would have thought. (laughs) Uh, Melissa, I'm a big flavor of love fan. (laughs) I think I... I saw, I think, season one. Um, did you watch, like, Rock of Love? I didn't watch Rock No, of Love. me neither. So I would Only watch Flavor of Love reruns on VH1 in middle school when I was homesick. Because you only watch inappropriate television in that situation. <laughs> but then, early pandemic, I rewatched Flavor of Love season one and... Boy, is it iconic. There's a scene where a woman microwaves a chicken for 30 seconds and tries to serve it to someone. (laughs) A whole chicken, Will. Like like a rotisserie chicken? Yes. Or was it? That is stuffed with whole vegetables. And it's they're supposed (laughs) to be making fried chicken. And she wants to make a healthy version. So she just puts whole carrots and like a whole onion and then throws it in the (laughs) microwave for 30 seconds and says, this will be good. There's a lot of iconic moments. And, you know, Flavor of Love season one, like, births New York, who is one of the greatest reality TV people ever. Right. And of course, New York features prominently in working (laughs) Exactly, so it's all back to the same point. It's an immigrant um, story. <laughs> point four? This really got me thinking now. <laughs> yes, okay, so I have point four as when Jack and Tess crash the wedding um, and are kind of working together and kind of learning a bit more about, like, how each other works, like, how, like, each other's kind of personalities. Like, I think that... This is actually the sweeter part of their relationship, um, as opposed to nice the meet cute. When they start working together, <laughs> go ahead and laugh. He wants us to meet with these people first thing Monday. So, Warren Trask, the man who said, "What if we sliced the bread before we sold it?" <laughs> yeah, all right. No, no, no. I loved it. I had fun, and you were amazing. You think so? Amazing. Like, she thinks it's been a disaster and, like, she should never have tried to rise above her station. She should never have pushed for this meeting. Like, tried to say, like, you should buy radio stations instead of TV stations. And Jack shows up and she's like, why have you doubled down on humiliating me? And instead he's, like, brought her a briefcase because she hadn't had one before because she didn't need one. And he's like, you're going to need a briefcase if we're going to work together. Like, I think that's a sweet gesture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like... If, if I just delete everything that happened before it, it's so sweet. <laughs> but with everything that happened before it, it's, like, nice. Like, it's a good, like, next kind of phase for them. But I do think that that, to me, is what's the most appealing about the Jack character is he always believes Tess. Like, he wants to believe her. He thinks she's doing a great job. Like, even when he's really apprehensive about this crashing the wedding idea and he thinks it's kind of insane, he, like, can tell her that it worked. Like, he doesn't kind of, he's not, I don't want to say not intimidated, but he doesn't feel any pressure. He doesn't feel like there's a need to, like, kind of one-up her. Like, and if anything, that's the experience that he says that he has when he was working with Catherine. And I think he really likes seeing Tess as an equal and he wants her to be an equal and he wants her to succeed. And I think that's the really kind of romantic and good part about the Jack character. There's an understanding of like a partnership. Mm -hmm. And he obviously he's very committed to it succeeding because he'll 
probably lose his job if it doesn't. But he doesn't take lead or try and build himself up to succeed. He is like putting himself in Tess's hands and trusts that she will help him succeed. Including literally when they dance their way into a wedding that they were not (laughs) invited to so that Tess can sweet talk the head of this company that they're trying to convince to do a merger. And I, and what I think is so great about that is it really just it really does show their partnership of like he thinks the idea is insane but he's like look we're here like let's just it is. do this. Yeah, it is it, it is absolutely insane, but there's no world there, where this would have worked. <laughs> I in I the don't 80s. Know. I think it is conceivable that this could work if it's a large enough wedding. Yeah. Totally. And they're and they're like all really rich. So it's like they're not really thinking too much about who's there and like who isn't there. Like and they look good. I will say her wearing white though blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I was like, is she really wearing this cute little like white slip dress to this woman's wedding? And then you, when you see the bride's wedding dress and it's <laughs> ugly, it's just <laughs> like this is giant terrible. feathery shoulders. It was awful. I I wedding dress watch. I really thought that she, I thought there was going to be a plot point where they like switched dresses. Like that's how bad it was. But then Tess would be wearing a skirt that looked like Nicaragua. (laughs) Also, the new husband is not Tess's. The train being like on an arm loop that's tied to the bride's wrists. So it like moves when she waves her arm. Oh, it's a bad dress and I loved it. Yeah, definitely choices. Um, But no, I think it really, I think the scene is really good in showing their partnership where they're there, he thinks it's crazy, but they're trying, they're going to do it. And when she's ready to back out and she's like, I can't do this, he's like, no, let me do the Harrison Ford thing and let me find out the person that Trask is dancing with. Let me get her name. Let me whisk her away so that you can do what you need to do. And I think that there's probably something to be said for like, Jack can't do this right. Like Jack can't be Tess in this situation. He can't like woo Trask the way that Tess can. And she's able to use like her smarts um, or the character that they're putting together in Tess. Like she's using her smarts to kind of woo him but she's also like a woman who isn't sort of afraid as they've written her to be a woman whatever that means um and so she's using like all of her tools to close this deal and jack is appreciative and he likes it and he likes this about her and then of course you know they go home after and it's nice that when they do have sex it is like a celebratory like yes we've done it kind of thing and not a like crappy earlier whatever Right, like, it's nice. Um, I also need to note that Trask Industries is the name of an evil company from X-Men Comics that builds racist robots. It maybe sounds the, maybe like it's the an same. evil it's company. It's the same universe. <laughs> I mean, Fox is now owned by Disney. So, <laughs> next, next MCU phase. Yep. <laughs> Just the in the background. It's... In the background of her riding the Staten Island ferry to her job, you just see robots fighting superheroes <laughs> in the background. Yeah. All right. So they work together, they grow closer, and then they bone. And then this is when we find out that Harrison Ford is still actively dating, in a way, Catherine. Right. We had heard at the beginning, before Catherine went on her disastrous ski trip, that she was going to be going with this guy that she'd been dating for a while. And she was like, he's going to propose. And I think I'm going to say yes. And he's going to propose because I want him to. Tess was like, what if he doesn't propose? And Catherine's like, that's not a possibility. 
I have to say, I really like. I know this. Maybe I'm just rusty. I really didn't see this coming. I also <laughs> like, didn't see this coming. I'm a big dummy. I really Wait. felt kind of stupid, but I didn't see it coming that Catherine was the girl that he was dating. I, that's like a famous part of this movie. Like <laughs> we haven't seen the movie. I, I yeah, I haven't either, and I still do that. That's in the well. I, that's uh, Mark. I was too busy letting the river run to focus <laughs> on what might be happening next. Will was enchanted by Sigourney. I was look. I was too busy looking at Harrison. We missed the whole right. thing. You wanted me to think about someone else dating Sigourney <laughs> Weaver in this movie. It's in Working Girl the Musical, Will, which I haven't seen. So I have. I, I know. have excuses. To be clear, Mark, you are talking about Work Hard or Die Trying Girl from Bob's Burgers. No, because it's in, it's not in the Work Hard or Die Trying Girl musical. It is in the Working Girl musical that Courtney's dad wrote. Ah, right. I thought you were talking about the Working Girl musical that is currently in development. (laughs) Spoiler Uh, alert, William. (laughs) It was coming up. How was I supposed to avoid it? Pretend that I didn't know? But honestly, I really didn't see this coming because I thought, like, normally I would think, yes, this is like a movie where that seems plausible. But Catherine seems so sure that he was going to propose that Jack being like, I'm going to break up with her just felt so delusional on Catherine's part. Maybe I should have saw it coming, but I didn't. But yeah, that really throws a wrench into things for Tess. It's already pretty messy, but. Right. There's this very awkward scene where Catherine has come back and is like, all right, it's time for me to get it on with hot Harrison Ford again. (laughs) And she calls him up, like, says it's an emergency. Tess is, like, in another room hiding. And Catherine is, like, trying to get him to have sex with her. And he's like, I have to go to a meeting. That whole scene is hilarious. And then, like, the, like, fake gorilla, like, being in it. It's like, that Catherine was given while she was in the hospital that just follows around for, like, 15 minutes this movie. It's so, that, that giant stuffed gorilla is so good. She was having a blast in the hospital, too. Yeah. Like, She's, I, like, throwing parties. Yeah. The gorilla definitely was hilarious, though. But, yeah, I think that, like, so, I don't know, like, yeah, they figure out, like, that Catherine's the other woman, and now they're headed to the Trask Industries meeting to kind of seal the deal. And all of this has been very awkward for Tess, because she did not know there was another woman until, like, they are in bed. Like, they've basically just been (laughs) like, I love you. Tess is about to say, I'm a secretary. And then she's interrupted because Jack's phone goes off. And it's Sigourney Weaver back in town. And he's like, so there's another woman. And then Tess finds out like, oh, it's my boss that I've been kind of impersonating for the last several weeks. Just super messy. And then she's hiding in another room when Jack does dodge having sex with Catherine, but like still has to kiss her. And that's weird. But then he does say, I met someone else. Yes. Like he is trying to do the right thing in that situation. Right. Kind of. (laughs) Like, Tess and Jack were definitely not very forthcoming um, at the start of their relationship. Jack leaving out that there was another woman who is at least so into him that they were going on a ski trip together. And Tess leaving out that she's basically a complete fraud. (laughs) Minor things, though. But Tess has gumption. That's true. And honestly, that's all that matters. That overrides everything. I wrote down gumption in all caps and underlined it because... (laughs) 
there is an early, I'm like just, there's been a run of comic book references the last couple episodes. There's an early issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. It's the first issue where he doesn't fight anybody. And instead, the last several pages are Aunt May giving a speech about gumption. And so that's <laughs> what I always think about. It's like an old lady being like, we've got gumption! <laughs> Tess read oh that my God. issue. <laughs> okay. I and think, remembering that this... Stan Lee wrote that. <laughs> does this bring us to the next scene or the next point, Melissa? I think we're still working our way to point four at the end, which is like, uh, oh or God. to point five, yeah, which is the the elevator um, scene when he chooses her. Because basically, like, when they're in the Trask meeting, Catherine busts in, claims ownership of the idea, tells everyone that Tess is just secretary. Um, Tess just runs out in tears. Obviously, she gets fired because, like, Olympia Dukakis told her, four strikes and you're out, girl. Like, this is enough. Um, and she did say four strikes, but... Yeah, it's a bonus strike. <laughs> bonus strike because Tess is so lovable and has gumption. Um, so that brings us to like the elevator scene, which I think is the culmination of the really sweet parts of her relationship with Jack. Miss Parker, if I were you, I'd go to your office and take a long last look around. Because in about five minutes, I'm going to see to it that you get the boot, but good. Warren, this is a simple misunderstanding and I, you cannot. I can and I will. Now get your, what did you call it? Bony Bony ass. Right. Bony ass out of my sight. They all, like, there's this big meeting as they're all trying to get on the elevators with Trask, with Catherine, with Jack, um, with Tess. And Jack just tells her, like, he believes her and that he thinks it's her idea. And Tess has a great line where she calls out Catherine's bony ass. And tells her we can where she can shove her bury the hatchet, which is incredible. I cheered. That's definitely where the AFI was thinking you're going to cheer at this part. Yeah, it's it's a nice, satisfying ending when first Jack and then ultimately old man Trask believe Tess and back her up. And she's recognized for the work she's done. You know, this is a movie where Tess has suffered a lot of indignities. I wrote down at one point, like, yeah. Tess needs very clearly defined job parameters. <laughs> In her contract. Because she is asked to do unreasonable things. A lot. And on the one hand, like, she did something she should not have done. But, like, the way that she sticks up for herself, it is satisfying to see that rewarded. Yeah, and I think think one of the... I can't remember exactly how she says it, but she says something like, you know, if you're in a position like mine, you have to break a lot of rules to get to the top. Like, I'm not just going to get there how all of you got there. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Yale. Like I have to do creative things to be successful. And she really, you know, went out there for that, but that is what she did. Like her ultimate goal was landing the deal. Like the Jack parts, like the having to, you know, impersonate Catherine. Like, I don't think we, I don't think Tess wants any of that. I think Jack is a nice bonus and impersonating Catherine is something she has to do because Catherine's going to steal her idea so i i really think the ending is really strong of explaining somebody like tess has to do what she has to do to to be successful she can't be Catherine. i was reading our favorite writer uh, caroline sides column about this movie and she brought up aileen brosh mckenna's big idea that aileen brosh mckenna talked about in the writing of 27 dresses and we talked about in that episode but the and a man model of yeah. the romantic comedy where it's really about self-actualization in an individual way. And like, as a reward for that, you also get the man. And 
I think that that is pretty well reflected in this movie, where Tess's ultimate goal is not to get with Jack. It's to create new opportunities and a new life for herself. And what's so satisfying is not like getting to see her kiss Harrison Ford, like that's cool. What's satisfying is the thrill of her being in that office at the end of the movie. Totally. I think that kind of like... One of my favorite quotes is um, Cher, the singer, is giving an interview um, and the interviewer is kind of like asking her and you know, Cher's talking about like her mom saying like, oh, Cher, you need to marry like a rich man. Like you have to find a man. And one of my favorite things is she's like, I am a rich man. I don't need. <laughs> I am <laughs> like, a rich I- man. <laughs> and, seriously, like she's she's built this career for herself and she says that like men are a luxury, like dessert. Like, yeah, you, you get one maybe as a bonus, but, like, the goal is really to create this space for yourself to do the things you're really good at and be successful at them. And it's really nice to see the movie accept that that's the real goal for Tess. And, yeah, she gets Harrison Ford as dessert. That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. So do we find the romance of Working Girl believable? It's, it's short for them to move in together. They are do implied they to be living together. At the end, yeah, he, he like packs her a lunch. lunch. <laughs> oh yeah, adorable. That's so. Sweet. And it's been like seven seven weeks. Yeah, I don't really think it's believable. <laughs> I would have personally a lot of trouble moving past the introduction, the way they yeah. meet, like waking up in his bed, undressed, no memory of the night before. I don't think I would be able to move past that and fall in love. Fair. I think that, I think the thing that, I mean, clearly the writer writes very good stories of man from, you know, he wrote Made in Manhattan, right? Man from certain kind of life. And uh, let's be clear. He also wrote Junior, the movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger gets pregnant. I I think I'm just going to delete that. (laughs) (laughs) Delete that from your brain. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to let that one go. He also wrote uh, Meet Joe Black. Which, if you've ever seen that very long uh, clip of Brad Pitt walking away and looking back and walking away and looking back and then getting hit by a car, that's from that movie. (laughs) Also, doesn't Brad Pitt do like a a Jamaican accent or something in that movie? It's pretty bad, I think. (laughs) But he's also been the showrunner of Blue Bloods for 10 years. (laughs) Right, which is the critical piece. Oh my god. Um, So I think... I think this writer seems to really be able to tell a really good story of, you know, people from two different walks of life, but I'm Demon not blue bloods. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Well, I just don't think this collars. one is that believable. Yeah. <laughs> I hate this so much. <laughs> I think Maine Manhattan is more believable than than this one, but so it's still a nice story. On a scale of 1 to 10 with 1 being the least and 10 being the most believable, where would you rate Working Girl? Like a four? I was also thinking a four. Me too. I think a four. Great. It's a four. Four feels right. (laughs) We did it. Do you think that either of them is dateable? I really want to make a distinction between dateable and just attractive. So, (laughs) so I appreciate this distinction. (laughs) So, if the question is dateable, I think no. I don't really think anyone in this is dateable. Maybe Tess. Yeah, I think Tess I is think probably dateable. Tess is dateable. Tess is working on her, though. Yeah, she's, you know, she's focused on, she's, like, positively self-centered right now. She's putting herself first, so um, she's yeah. got to focus on that. Jack, no. Yeah, I'm a pass on no. Jack. No. I think I will, too. Very, 
Very attractive, but no. <laughs> if I have to pick a problematic Harrison Ford to date, I'm going straight to the Temple of Doom. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. awful. <laughs> if you did have to choose one person to date in this movie, who would you choose? So all of what I just said, despite that, Jack. <laughs> all of that other stuff is true, but it's it's still Jack for me. So I sympathize with that, obviously, because Sigourney Weaver entered this movie in a cape. Yes. But I cannot in good conscience date Catherine, who's a bad lady. So I'm going to say Olympia Dukakis. No, that's what I was going to say. Because how do you great. not choose Olympia Dukakis? And she is also compassionate, offering Tess another chance. She gets a fourth strike. That's true. And frankly, not only offers her another chance, but like finds a way to put her in a position where she will not face the same issues she has had before. True. Yeah. So Olympia is the real, the real hero here. She's the real MVP. Do you think that Jack and Tess will stay together? I think so. I think it can work. I think it can work between them, for sure. There's a lot of spice there, a lot of excitement, um, but they also work really well together. So I think it's I think it's believable that they'll stay together. Yeah, I buy it. Yeah. All right, well, Will, you already spoiled this, but Melissa, do you <laughs> think that this should be made into a musical? I'm going to go with no, but I guess, like, <laughs> too bad. <laughs> yeah, they announced a musical in 2017 with music by Carly Simon. And in 2019, it was confirmed that the musical was still in development, despite like the Disney Fox merger, it was still underway. They like hired a director, they hired someone to write the book. At the time of the announcement in fall 2019, they were like, we're shooting for a 2021 slash 2022 premiere. I have no idea what they are looking at right now, because there have not been updates since fall 2019 and i'm not sure if anything has happened in the theater world since then but it feels like things have been pretty quiet (laughs) well i think that's about it for working girl thank you for joining us melissa thanks for having me i enjoyed this movie i I did too i let the river run next week it's time to slam because we will be doing our annual check-in on the year in movies so far talking about the new release in theaters, if you're vaccinated, on HBO Max, if for some reason you're not, Space Jam, A New Legacy, starring Bugs Bunny and LeBron James. I really thought you were about to say your annual check-in on Space Jam. And I was (laughs) like, wow, I really didn't know that was a feature of this podcast. So that would be unfortunate because Space Jam is a bad movie. (laughs) I've actually never I seen I anticipate Space Jam. exclusively talking about Lola Bunny's change design. All right. So, Melissa, you have not seen Space Jam. You must watch it because it is a bizarre artifact that our generation has convinced itself is good. It's a deeply strange movie. It's also not super long. Space Jam A New Legacy appears to be like Warner Brothers Ready Player One. Yeah, that's definitely what the trailer is giving for sure. I never saw Space Jam because I think when I was supposed to watch it, I thought it was a little scary. And so I just never finished it. So I've never seen Space Jam or the animated movie Hercules for the exact same reasons. (laughs) (laughs) That is very strange. (laughs) I am more lukewarm on Hercules than most, but it is much better than Space Jam. They both freaked me out. And so I just never saw them. And now as an adult, I'm like, do I need to? I don't know. 
I think you should watch Space Jam. It is such a bizarre piece of like rank commercialism. <laughs> Where like people talk about like, you know, the Joel Schumacher Batman movies or like the Phantom Menace as like movies that are designed to sell toys. Space Jam exclusively exists to sell merchandise and unlike the Phantom Menace is not ashamed of it. Like there's a scene where Wayne Knight just lists every company that had sponsorships with Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah, maybe this will be better as an adult then, because that sounds pretty funny. Okay, I'll have to watch. Well, you can hear all of our thoughts about the new Space Jam next week, but until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Melissa, what is the best piece of dating advice we got from Working Girl? If your man is cheating on you, you should probably leave. <laughs> that's 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 Great. the advice, I think. Insightful. That is good advice in the movie. <laughs> I think that if your partner is holding you back instead of encouraging you forward, you should ditch him. Love that. I'm going to say, trust your partner and go along for some wacky ideas, like crashing a wedding that happens to be like <laughs> Caribbean themed and dancing your way into it wearing a white dress. Well, Love that too. There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about robots. Bye! Bye! Bye. Bye. Working, working girl. I'm a girl who's working. I work in New York City. All aboard the plane from New York to Los Angeles.